Wooed a Marjorie Daw for fourteen long years. By Anonymous. From the New York Times of October 2, 1910. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Wooed a Marjorie Daw for fourteen long years. Connecticut man gave up his earnings freely to an imaginary girl, the creation of a neighbor it is charged. Long correspondence with his phantom fiancé. For five years, Judge Thomas F. Walsh of the Connecticut town of Southington has been trying the ordinary cases of village misdemeanors. In the old-fashioned courthouse on the main street, fronting on a well-shaded square with the inevitable monument to those who fought for the Union in the center, the petty sins of villagers have been heard and the guilt established and the punishment meted out with mercy. The town court has been established only for five years, and Judge Walsh has been on the bench all of that time. Prosecutor Franklin G. Brown also has held his office all of the existence of the court, while Sheriff James McCabe, a hardy type of county politician and county police officer, has been the deputy in charge of this district for 18 years. The court is hardly more than a family council, for there is not a shyster lawyer in the little community, and if one appeared, it is hardly probable that he would be tolerated. Mr. Brown is prosecutor in title only. He hears the cases with the magistrate and does not seek convictions. He is as much counsel for the defense as he is counsel for the people, the main idea of the little court being to get the truth at any cost of time and to punish with due and decent consideration for extenuating circumstances and ever with mercy tempering justice. Imagine, into this tiny courtroom and into this family council, looming suddenly a case that for tragedy, insofar as the human heart goes, has seldom been equaled in the courts of New York City. Picture a clean-shaven bachelor of forty-eight years, rather poorly clad, wistful of eye and shy of demeanor, the plaintiff, and a man about five years his senior, with the skin drawn tight on his face and his eyes small and bright, the defendant. The man of shy demeanor wore a bit of black bound about his hat. It was a sign of mourning, for a sweetheart that never lived. The man with the keen little eyes stood charged with having conjured before the mind of the old bachelor the picture of a beautiful and lovable woman that through this creature of the imagination he might swindle him of his earnings. When it was no longer possible to keep loving hope in the breast of the village bachelor, the creator of this sweetheart phantasm killed the Lady of Shadows in a letter. The dupe was heartbroken. He had loved deeply, had felt the pangs of love, and he still suffers the torture of having had heaven spread before his mind's eye and then ruthlessly wiped away. For fourteen years, Prosecutor Brown charges and claims to have ample evidence to prove the charge, William A. Barnes held the mind of the bachelor, George F. Osborne, in thrall with imaginary loves, getting from him in the meanwhile fully $6,000, all the money he earned in that time as a watchmaker. As the Connecticut law does not carry a charge of swindling for more than a year before the limitation for prosecution comes, there is against Barnes the charge of swindling only $500, the amount given up by Osborne during 1910. On this charge, Barnes is now under bail to appear for trial in the county court during the December term. The grief in the eyes of the bachelor watchmaker, the fact that he stood stripped of every cent his labor had brought him, the fake letters that the fake sweetheart had written him, 
all in the handwriting of Barnes, the heart-hopelessness of the man sent a thrill of compassion through the hearts of the judge and the prosecutor when the case was brought up for the preliminary hearing. If ever a man had been cruelly bilked both by his fellow man and that incomprehensible thing called fate, George Osborne appeared to be that man. When the late Thomas Bailey Aldrich wrote his first prose success, a short story that swung him from the fame of a lyrist in verse to among the masters of the better-paying form of composition, he told this same story in prophecy. Few who know English literature can forget the suspended poignancy of the story of Marjorie Daw, the tragedy of a man who fell in love with a girl he had never seen, and who was only conjured up in the imagination of a letter-writing friend who sought to disperse the tedium of an invalid by getting him interested in something other than his own hurt. In the fiction story by Aldrich, John Fleming lay for weeks with a broken leg. His irritability was such that his physician wrote to Edward Delaney, asking him to try and write something that would ease his mind and smooth the way for his quick recovery. Delaney wrote of a girl in a hammock across the street of a New England village. The ill man was made easy of mind. His friend wrote more of her. She was gracious and sweet and all that was good. His friend told him that he talked with her about him and that she was interested. The letters went on. The ill man fell in love with a lady of shadows, and the imaginative friend had the creature of his mind fall in love with the dreaming and happy Fleming. Fleming became healed and sought his love with a beating heart. It was his first love. He was half crazed to see her. Mr. Aldrich, whose whole life was gentleness, ended the story with the start of Fleming to the village where his love was supposed to live. The anguish of the dissipated dream was left to the imagination of the reader. Marjorie was the tragedy of a few weeks only. That tremendous story by Du Maurier, Peter Ibbotson, gave the dream love an ideal ending. There was no ghastly disappointment. He carried Peter and his love clear into the spirit world and into the heaven of spirit cognizance and recognizance. But here in Southington, which almost nestles in the shadow of the Berkshire Hills, and where there is a serenity and a beauty of nature and the calm and peace of people peacefully possessing, poor George Osborne wears a band of crepe on his weather-beaten hat, and in his heart a scar that was ploughed deeper and deeper with each of the fourteen years of his illusionment. He could have all the money this experience cost me, said Osborne, if he would only give me back the woman he created and made me love. Penniless, I would be happy still. What emptiness in life for a man in a village to face after a tragedy of this sort. If, after passing through the agony of this strange tragedy and saving once more enough money to make a home, he should cast about for a mate, he would find none. What practical village mother would have as a son-in-law this man who so ardently loved a creature that never existed? And what woman in his class in life could hope to understand the poignancy that the death of this creature, which was never born, had caused him? George Osborne left his work among the little wheels and springs of watches in his home on the morning of August 19th last to go to the post office and seek a letter from his beloved. Her name was Gladys Wilson. He knew no one in the great outside world that would write to him or take notice of him save the woman he loved. When Barnes, who got money from him on any and every pretext, went to Philadelphia, where she lived, he always got letters from him, letters that brought joy into his life, for they mentioned her name and told of her. There were no other correspondents for the village watch tinker, 
and there had been no mail for him before the fiction of Gladys Wilson was built. For the years that the fiction lasted, his had been the joy of going to the village post office every mail time, along with other people, and asking for Osborne's mail. So, in the flush of summer, Osborne asked at the post office, expecting another letter from the Lady of Shadows, and he received one from Barnes. This was the letter. Philadelphia, August 18, 1910. Dear friend, I sent you word from Toronto that Miss Wilson was dead. She died on August 16th. I had to come down here, as they called me, and they paid my expenses. I will be at your place on the 20th, and I want you to go down with me on the 21st. Have ready your fare of $4.92. They will let you have the checks when you get there. I have got to go to New Haven on the next train. We'll tell all when I get to you. Respectfully, W.A.B. If word had been sent Osborne from Toronto, he had not received it. The woman he loved was dead. The checks referred to in the letter were a part of the fiction. Gladys had written him that before their marriage she was going to give him her property. Property meant nothing to Osborne. Through the years he had given her what he had earned at one call after another, and to Barnes, who had first told him of her beauty and grace, and had started the correspondence, he had freely given in gratitude. He wanted nothing save the love of woman. He had nothing but this love in his breast, and she was dead. He was staggered by the blow. Miss Wilson is dead. She had never been born in the flesh and blood, but she had lived in his mind and heart. The village watch tinker had prepared for her coming as his bride. Through the years she had set dates and even named trains. He had found, to his utter dismay, that she had even come to his humble home one day when he was away and he found a note from her telling that she was sorry that she had missed him, that she wanted to see him so much, and that she was compelled to take the next train to Boston. He must have kissed the sill of his door where her feet might have trod, and the nearness of paradise delayed must have wrenched his simple, trusting heart mightily. But there had been another little tragedy at the village post office, before this great, overwhelming one. Two years ago he disregarded Barnes, through whom he had sent and received his mail from his beloved, and undertook to write to her himself. He had a friend in the village typewrite this letter for him. His handwriting is the scrawl of the man who is diligent with steel things other than the pen. She had promised to come to him, but at the last minute had hurt her thumb, in a letter sent through Barnes, and this injury to the woman he loved had deeply worried him. Here was the letter he wrote her, sending it to an address he had cornered Barnes into faking. Miss Gladys Wilson, number 605 Wabash Avenue, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. My dear Miss Wilson, I was quite disappointed that you did not come with Mr. Barnes Sunday night, but it may be for the best that you stay until your thumb is better. I should like to go to Philadelphia and come up here with you when you get ready to come. That is, if you would like to have me. Please write and tell me when and where to go there. I hope your thumb will get well soon, so that you may come. Mr. Barnes gave me a letter he said Dr. Swift had written to me. I have not received your picture and letter yet. I must close. With love, George F. Osborne. He haunted the post office after sending this letter, and one day got it back with a red splotch on the face, a finger pointing to his own address in the corner and informing him, in red type, that no such person lived at such address. He hunted up Barnes. There was an excuse. Barnes had been making excuses for fourteen years, and had become an adept. 
She had left this address, but he promised that the picture would be forthcoming. Hope came to George Osborne once more, and he resumed the mending and making of watches. Barnes promised faithfully that the picture would be sent to him. Time and again he had been fooled, but always he lay down at night to dream of this woman, Gladys, the woman he loved and who had told him in many letters that she loved him. In the fiction story of Marjorie Daw, Delaney found the same trouble with his victim. Fleming insisted on a picture, and it was promised time and again, but never given. But Barnes reached a point where his victim must be fed a crumb. He sent him a picture, the photograph of a pleasing-looking woman of forty years or so. It was just the sort of a prototype that a keen and discerning man would have chosen. Osborne was passing beyond the roaring forties. A girl love might not appeal to him. A mature woman might. Barnes sent him this photograph, and poor Osborne bowed down and worshipped it, kissed it night and morning, and hope grew strong within him, because at last he knew that his love had features and eyes and hair, like the women who were not only in dreams, but in the flesh and in everyday life. It was but the cruel prolongation of the agony. The picture was that of a woman who had never heard of Osborne, and perhaps had never known that such a village as Southington was on the map. Barnes and Osborne have been friends since childhood. The former has been initiative in character, and the latter passive. Barnes is a skilled mechanic, able in a shop, but leaning towards idleness. The latter has been industrious, but silent and shy. He was ever afraid of women, but at the same time a dreamer. He would not work in the machine shops that employ the majority of the population of Southington. He wanted the fresh air, toil over his watches and clocks under his own roof, and a pay envelope that he filled himself. Barnes wanted the fun of evenings at the many tap-rooms of the village, summers at the not-too-distant shore of the Sound, and nights in Bridgeport. To have these pleasures he must have money. Prosecutor Brown says that Barnes took hold of Osborne as a leech in the early days of their youth, and with the cunning of an unscrupulous man who can read the weaknesses of a friend, devised a plan of preying upon his earning capacity. One of the exhibits to be shown in the trial of Barnes is a letter that is alleged to have been written by the young daughter of Barnes, a girl named Ruby. Mr. Brown says that Barnes held out the girl to Osborne as a prospective wife, and that he was the means of sending to Osborne this letter from his own child. Dear George, I think of you all the time and what you have done. I want to come up there, but Mama has all the time made trouble. I will come up there as soon as I can. Then we shall be happy all the time. With love, Ruby. This was before the immortal and dead and never born Gladys was concocted by Barnes. The father of Ruby borrowed all the money that Osborne could make on the promise that he should have Ruby as wife. Osborne gave readily and allowed himself to be shorn, for did not Ruby love him? The fiction of Gladys only came after Osborne was left in the pitiful plight of seeing Ruby marry another man and bear a daughter by the husband, the man she loved. But Osborne was young when this trickery was played him, and when his natural yearning for a mate returned to him after the subsiding of his grief, Barnes evolved Gladys. Through the years Gladys lived in the mind of Osborne, but not one of the many hundreds of letters the prosecuting attorney took from Osborne failed to mention a matter of money. They showed that Gladys was a well-to-do woman. They speak largely of the estate left her, and go into details of ridding it of legal encumbrances and tangles, and there is always the request for a few dollars. 
To help her, Osborne worked his fingers to the raw. He lived in a little flat above the meat shop at Plannersville, a part of Southington. He begrudged himself food and tobacco. He has never been known to enter a saloon unless it was to fix a clock. He has never been known to take a drink. Drink was a waste of money. In the fourteen years, according to the letters of Gladys, in the handwriting of Barnes, Osborne gave all that he earned. When his business was dull, he beat carpets for the well-to-do, and even ran chores, solemnly doing the work of a child. Even after the death of the Lady of the Shadows, he was preyed upon, for letters from Barnes show that money was needed for probate. In the meanwhile, the idleness of Barnes became the laughing topic of the village gossips. How could he do it when others worked six days a week in the mills, turning out machinery day and night? He drank and played, he was a barroom songster, he went to the shore in summer, and he only worked a few days at a time. No one suspected, for George Osborne was a man of few words, and with but a single friend, Barnes. Barnes was the man who had known Gladys Wilson. But Barnes overstepped himself. In a moment of weakness he met Osborne with a promise to repay him for all the years of giving and lending. He handed Osborne a note payable to G. F. Osborne thirty days after date at the New Haven National Bank for five thousand dollars. The note was signed E. M. Whitmore. Osborne tried to collect the money. No such man as Whitmore was known at the New Haven National Bank. The bank officials wanted to know something about the note. George told them about it. Deputy Sheriff McCabe soon had the case and arrested Barnes. Then came the prosecutor and his investigation which uncovered to Osborne and to the village the hoax of Gladys Wilson, which laid bare as cruel and as unusual a swindle as ever got into public print. The United States authorities have not yet started an investigation of the use of the mails by Barnes, said Mr. Brown to a Times reporter. We will finish with him, and if by any chance he should escape, we have plenty of letters to turn over to Uncle Sam. But to the final settling of matters with Barnes, George Osborne does not seem to be strongly inclined. He will appear and tell his story, and he will end that story of fourteen years of cruel illusionment with his one single statement, that if Barnes could give him back Gladys Wilson, he would count his loss of fourteen years' toil as no loss. The skeptical reader might say that he is weak-minded. He is not that. He is a shy and bashful old bachelor of a Connecticut village and he wanted someone to start his courting for him. Had he been fortunate enough to have managed this with an honest friend, he might today be the quiet and loving and peaceful father of a family. As it is, he is back in his little quarters, tinkering at watches and clocks. The little building half hangs over an arm of the purling Quinnipiac River. This little stream of water sings day and night over pebbles and through rank water growth. Through his open window he can hear its song. Down through the marketplace of night came Peddler Sleep, clad in a ragged dusk about whose seams, full many restless sighs in tatters hung, while all his wares were dreams. And dreams he had, gay seamed with gold love threads, wild dreams embossed with trembling and with fears, and some were sadly patterned out in grey, embroidered round with tears. The rest of this poem, recently printed in the Academy, Granting forgetfulness to the spirit of unrest may apply to George Osborne, bachelor and trusting friend, but today it does not, for he would again go through it all for the very phantom of love, and that he might have his Lady of Shadows back with him.
not the perfidy of barnes not the toil he gave in the work of his heart and hand drove the light of life from the wistful eye of osborne it was the cruel letter that was not written in the marjorie daw letters of fiction that blasted him the letter that told him she died on the sixteenth end of wooed a marjorie daw for fourteen long years by anonymous from the new york times october second nineteen ten Recording by Colleen McMahon.